This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Wiser Books. Wiser Books is celebrating 60 years of publishing the very best in occult and esoterica. You can check out their extensive and inspiring range of reading material by going to wiserbooks.com. That's W-E-I-S-E-R books.com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. I've been thinking a lot about the Magician Tarot card lately. This is the second card of the Major Arcana, though it has the number one since most decks start with the Fool at zero. The Magician is almost always shown standing in front of a table of magical objects, usually the pentacle, wand, sword, and cup, signifying the suits of the entire tarot deck. And the Magician is also usually shown doing this grand gesture, where they have their right arm pointing upwards and left arm pointing downwards. I tend to think of the magician as forming a circuit between polarities and transferring energies between above and below, heaven and earth, light and shadow, masculinity and femininity. And this is a continuous, eternal flow of energy, as signaled by the lemniscate, or infinity symbol, above the magician's head. When I get this card in a reading, it usually signifies that I have all the tools I need to do some sort of great working, whether it's a magical spell, a creative project, or a big life change. This card tells me that I am ready to make things happen. But crucially, this change can only occur if I allow myself to exist in a state of flow and integration. The magician suggests that by allowing ourselves to be a channel between all of these different elements and polarities of ourselves and of the world, we can become extremely effective agents of creativity and transformation. I was thinking about the Magician card quite a bit when speaking with today's very special guest, Jinx Monsoon, who is a drag queen, a witch, and the winner of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 5. As you'll hear, Jinx speaks so eloquently about their quest to live a more magical, more fully integrated life, both on and off stage. 
But something else to keep in mind when listening to our conversation is that the magician card from the Smith Weight deck that many of us are so familiar with was originally created in 1909. The much older Marseille Tarot deck has a related card in it, but with some significant differences. This card is called Le Bataleur, which roughly translates to stage magician or street magician. The magician of the Marseille deck has their left arm pointing upwards and right arm pointing downwards, and they stand in front of a table of magic tricks. This is a card about illusion and wiliness, about the importance of play and allowing one's suspension of disbelief so that miracles can happen and fun can be had. Drag queens are the ultimate battleurs and magicians. They use glamours and trickery to transcend gender binaries, to entertain, to awaken, to heal, and ultimately to remind us that the imagination is the most powerful tool that we all have at our disposal. I'm so excited to share my conversation with Jinx Monsoon about witchcraft, drag, and magic of many kinds. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Charlotte writes, The day after Ostara was my year and a day of practicing witchcraft. While I started practicing tarot seriously seven or so years ago, finally realizing that being a witch was something I could be fully took a lot longer. I've taught tarot over the years to a handful of friends in a workshop-type method where we practice and discuss with one another and share food, trying to make a comforting environment that I did not get to experience when I was first learning, but desperately wanted. I feel at my strongest sharing and encouraging others and collaborating, so that gave me such a great sense of purpose and validation. I have struggled so much finding community and people to learn from in the past, and in the present, I suppose. I often feel like there's a wall between me and other witches. I'm a pretty friendly person, and I genuinely enjoy being around others, so I find myself really hurt when I continually reach out at either metaphysical shops or workshops or on the internet and feel no one reaching back. So I suppose my question for you is, how did you find your coven? Hey, Charlotte. First of all, congratulations on your one-year anniversary of practicing witchcraft. That's a huge accomplishment, and I hope you're feeling really proud and fulfilled and excited about where this path will take you. And I totally hear you. I was a solitary practitioner for most of my life, but a number of years ago, I also started longing for others that I could learn from and share with. 
It sounds like you've already done some of the things I usually suggest when it comes to meeting others, which is to go to New Age or occult shops or take workshops, and I'm sorry that you haven't really connected with anyone at any of those places yet. I will say that sometimes people are shy or your people might not be there on the day that you showed up, but if you keep going back, you might start to connect with someone. We don't always find our people the second we walk in the door. Sometimes it takes showing up several times over before you feel that spark of connection. Still, I can see that you're ready now, and you're someone who seems really proactive. So, why not start your own coven? I myself have been in various circles and covens over the years, but the coven I'm in now is one that I actually started myself. And I did it because I was also at a point in my life where I was looking for community. And so I reached out to a group of people that I admire, some of whom I knew really well, some of whom I'd only met once or twice, but got a good vibe from. And these people were all folks who I knew were most likely open to magic, if not practicing some form of witchcraft already. Some of these folks considered themselves witches, but several of them didn't necessarily and didn't have a ton of experience, but were just open-minded and open-hearted. When I invited everyone, I told them I was doing a kind of experiment and wanted to gather one night to build a sense of connection and do ritual and celebrate the spring equinox. And I also told them that I hoped it was something that might continue and that maybe we would keep meeting, but that we'd just have to see and feel it out. But my one stipulation was that even though I would lead this first gathering, I did not want to be the leader of the coven. If we did indeed decide to keep meeting, I would want us to each take turns hosting and leading because I wanted to be able to participate and to share the responsibility of planning and organizing because it is a big job. Anyhow, as you may have guessed, the first gathering went beautifully and we did indeed keep meeting. And in fact, Queen Wright Coven just celebrated our one-year anniversary on Ostara, or spring equinox. So that's what I recommend. You already have some people you know who are interested in tarot, so why not invite a few of them over to celebrate the next pagan holy day or moon phase of your choosing, and see what happens. None of you has to be an expert. You can read and research different rituals, spells, activities, and so on, and you can commit to learning together. Treat it as your own witch study group if you want to, but make it personal and don't be afraid to ask other people to contribute their own ideas, time, and energy too. None of you has to be experts. You just have to have a willingness to learn and be kind to each other and to yourselves. I hope that helps. Let me know how it goes, and I wish you a happy covening. Now, on to my guest. 
Jarek Hoffer is perhaps best known as drag queen Jinx Monsoon. They won season five of RuPaul's Drag Race and won my heart with their Snatch Game impression of Grey Garden's Little Edie. As we'll hear, the character of Jinx Monsoon is a combination of many other brassy and powerful feminine personas, and is also informed by Hoffer's real-life witchcraft practice, both on and off stage. A tremendously gifted comedian, actor, and singer, Hoffer performs in and out of drag worldwide, and as Jinx Monsoon, they have recorded such albums as The Ginger Snapped and The Inevitable Album, which you can listen to wherever you get your music. On this episode, Jinx and I discuss the magic of drag, the influence of witchcraft, and the ways in which they've come to master the art of illusion, identity, and integration. Jinx joined me from their home in Portland, Oregon, on a very rare day off via Skype. Jinx Monsoon, welcome to the Witch Wave. Hi there, Pam. (laughs) This is insane. I feel like I have gone through the looking glass because I am such a fan of yours. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. (laughs) Oh, I'm thrilled, as you can tell. So I want to dive right in and talk about certainly the character, the amazing phenom that is Jinx Monsoon, and just kind of catch folks up who may be the poor, unfortunate souls who are not familiar with you or your drag. And after that, I want to get very deep into witches and witchcraft, which I know is a topic that is close to both our hearts, if that sounds good. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Wonderful. So for people who have been, I don't know, in a coma or just who have terrible priorities, but who might not know, you are the winner of season five of RuPaul's Drag Race. And that was in 2013. Is that right? Yes. And Your style of drag, I'm going to attempt to describe it, though I haven't had the privilege of seeing it in person yet. You can do a much better job than I can, so I'll let you take (laughs) it over. But I think of you as really comedic. I think of you as having a big, wide nod to retro and to divas of the past. And then, of course, lots of homages to musical theater. What am I missing? Uh, that's a lot of it. I always say that like the best way to start when creating a drag persona is to kind of create a recipe of three to five personal divas that contribute to your drag persona. And mine changes over time, but I think the five that stay constant are Carol Burnett, Betty Davis, Lucille Ball, uh, Madeline Kahn, and Bette Midler. I think if you look at my body of work, you can see specific instances of all of those women popping up into my work. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's talk about crafting a drag persona, because that sounds a bit like alchemy or witchcraft, taking all these (laughs) ingredients. When you were 
starting out, did you have Jinx Monsoon kind of come to you? Or was this a slow evolution or accretion of different people and different inspirations? It was an evolution, absolutely. Because let's start at the very beginning. I started drag at 14 years old, because I was lucky enough to live in a place where It was easy for me to come out. I had resources as a queer teenager from the moment I came out. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, so I had this queer teen rec center that I spent most of my time at from like uh, 14 to 17. And I was able to like meet peers. You know, a lot of queer teens have a hard time coming out because they're the only one in their in their area or they don't know anyone else who's queer so they feel completely alone and i was lucky to not have to feel alone mm, that's a blessing it's probably the best thing i mean that and a supportive accepting family i mean those are two things that are invaluable to a queer teenager so i was able to start doing drag at a very early age. There was also an all ages gay dance club in Portland, Oregon, when I started doing drag. So I was able to start doing it like basically the moment I wanted to. (laughs) And the first iteration of Jinx was that she was a wind up doll. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't speak at all. I uh, was doing ballet at the time. And I was obsessed with dancing on point. So I had my own pair of point shoes and me and another performer would paint ourselves white like porcelain dolls and we would come out as wind up dolls and we would only start being animated once the music began. Mm. Then there was a night that the host disappeared or didn't show up or something (laughs) and they needed a last minute person And I stepped up to do it because it was always something I kind of wanted to do. But I had never considered, like, what would Jinx Monsoon sound like? And how would I make jokes when I'm a wind-up doll? (laughs) (laughs) And when I took to the stage, something happened. And I just ended up doing a really cheesy impression of my mom. Mm. And it worked. And then pretty much after that, I've always said that even though I have all these other influences essentially, I'm just channeling my mother. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Is she still with us? Yes. And my mother is a huge supporter of my drag nowadays. It took her some coming around to it. But now when people meet my mother, they're like, oh, that's that's Jinx Monsoon. Oh, my goodness. So how did the name come to you? You have an interesting spelling. It's J-I-N-K-X. And then the name Monsoon. Where does that all come from? Jinx was actually my nickname at the Queer Teen Rec Center. A lot of the teens there came from different backgrounds and not necessarily supportive households. When people would call looking for the teenagers there, we weren't supposed to say if they were there or not because sometimes they were avoiding unsafe situations at home. Sure. So to make it a little more safe, we all used nicknames. And I just spelled it with a K because I thought it looked more like a name that way. (laughs) Mm, mm, I love that. The nickname kind of came about because I'm extremely clumsy. (gasps) And there's this thing that exists in my family called the Hoffer curse. That's my given last name, where it's kind of like Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, but it'll happen to us. Oh, no. (laughs) 
And it's been a long-standing belief in my family that there's a curse on our family. It's most powerful on Thursdays. <laughs> oh my goodness. What kind of things have happened? Everyone in my immediate family who has um, passed away at this point passed away on a Thursday. And that just like bolsters the whole idea of the curse. I can't even list any specific experiences where I've seen it be true, <laughs> only that it's just always been a part of my life. <laughs> it's always just been a part of the um, Hoffer continuum that there's a curse on our family and it's strongest on Thursdays. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, we're speaking on a Friday, so hopefully yeah. we're both safe today. My goodness. Yeah. And where does monsoon come from? Monsoon is based on Adina Monsoon, the main character in the show. Absolutely fabulous. Oh, of course. <laughs> My mom went to London a couple times with friends and brought back a lot of British television for me to watch as a kid. So I became obsessed with the show. Absolutely fabulous. At you know, actually too young of an age for that show. But <laughs> <laughs> so when I started doing drag. I think what I took the most from that show and put into my own work was the physical comedy, the dry wit mixed with absurd situations, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's one of the reason I and I think so many other people fell in love with you because you have that wit and that absurdity and that intelligence as well. No shade to other drag queens, but it feels pretty exceptional and pretty rare, at least to me. I want to talk about television because so much of drag is about illusion and crafting and glamour. And TV to me has this whole other layer of that, many more layers, some might say. What was it like for you to try to translate your drag onto television? Actually, I find it was easier to put my drag persona on television and compete in the challenges that they put forth on Drag Race when we have to create characters and act out sketches or perform songs or anything like that. Since I developed Jinx by watching I Love Lucy and Absolutely Fabulous and Madeline Kahn movies and old Betty Davis movies, it's like I was always ready for Jinx to be on a screen, you know, mm, <laughs> like, mm. Jinx was always in a movie or on a TV show in her own mind or on stage on a Broadway show. So I feel like it was really natural to do Jinx in front of a camera. Uh, the unnatural thing was being myself in front of the cameras, <laughs> like yeah. to take off the makeup and take off my suit of armor that I wear. And the hardest part post drag race was the fact that before drag race, a lot of people didn't know what I looked like out of drag. I like to think of it as a complete head-to-toe transformation. So I wouldn't get, as we say, clocked on the street. You know, yeah. I could walk about my my day-to-day -day life. I actually had conversations with people sometimes where they were telling me about Jinx and what they knew about Jinx <laughs> with the idea that I was Jinx. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you were really incognito. Yeah. And I liked that ability to shapeshift, you know, to be able to be Jinx in the evening and Jarek during the day. And with Drag Race, it removed that layer of anonymity and it removed my ability to separate my two egos, basically. and people started seeing Jinx and Jarek as all one person. And that was a weird shift for me because 
Jinx is very much a manifestation of aspects of my personality, whereas I don't necessarily like practice <laughs> my jinx behavior in my day-to-day life. <laughs> That's probably healthy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so one of the reasons that I think that RuPaul is so resonant with people is that there is this real thread of spirituality. I don't even think you have to look too closely if you're just paying attention, whether you're listening to his podcast or watching him either in or out of drag on the show. You know, there really is this spiritual layer to Rue, this real depth. And so I'm wondering, did you get to a place of evolving your own spirituality through Rue or through Drag Race? Or has that always kind of been part of your journey since the beginning? I had never really compared my drag work to spirituality before RuPaul's Drag Race. I think that came from RuPaul's Drag Race. And before I went on my season, you know, when I became a fan of RuPaul's Drag Race myself, and way before I ever considered auditioning, I became obsessed with Ru once more in my life. I've done that multiple times in my life because RuPaul has this tendency to disappear for a few years and then come back in a big way. And then... (laughs) But a big part of like Rue's story is that he learned a lot from Marianne Williamson's Return to Love, which is a book that speaks volumes about spirituality and your own like self journey and self improvement. And it uses language that we're familiar with, even though it's talking about things that transcend religion or one specific way of looking at things. So I went on to my season knowing that like spirituality had a huge impact on Rue and Rue's life and got Rue to where he is today. And I didn't really think I would have a spiritual revelation. By the end of it, I realized that I had kind of gone through the gauntlet. Yes, (laughs) you went on a hero's journey. (laughs) Yeah. And then I think it was at the very, very end, I just kind of took stock and realized, oh my gosh, I've totally manifested. And I refer to drag race as me coming to my butterfly stage, you know? Yes, yes. If anyone listening watched my crowning, the episode where I I won, I had a dress that was covered in butterflies because I realized that the whole competition was kind of like my cocooning period. And then coming out of it on the other end. I, it was my butterfly reveal, basically. <laughs> yes. And do you feel like you were able to maintain, to stick with this metaphor, your wings being unfurled? Or do you still go through periods of contraction or doubt? Or does being on Drag Race like just give you all the confidence in the world? I mean, you won. Or do you still kind of have to grapple with, you know, growing and keeping those wings flapping? Absolutely. I've gone through multiple growth periods since Drag Race. I think when I won, I thought, this is it. Everything's going to be perfect from now on. You know, when you accomplish Mm -hmm. something that seems impossible, your brain kind of tricks yourself into thinking, okay, I'm done now. Now everything's going to be easy street from here on out. And I tried my best not to think that way. I tried my best to be realistic, but I can't explain what it feels like 
when drag is your whole world and it became my whole world thanks to drag race and I don't regret it but when mm-hmm. your passion is also your livelihood is also your outlet for creativity is also your artistic medium when all of that is the same thing you spend a lot of time thinking about it and preparing and executing it's like your whole life becomes consumed by it and when you win a competition like drag race you're on top you know I was crowned the queen of all the queens that year yes and I had my year-long reign and I felt like I was at the absolute top and then what happens is you crown your successor and you instantly feel like you don't matter anymore. (laughs) As much as you can prepare mentally for the fact that like you're eventually going to crown a successor, the new season is going to air and all the focus is going to shift to these new people. You can prepare for it mentally, but until it happens, you don't know how it's going to affect you. So I definitely went into a dark place when I crowned my successor because all of a sudden it felt like, oh, all the opportunities that used to go to me are now going to this new person. Mm -hmm. And it affected me in the way that I was unable to see what opportunities were still coming my way. And I was unable to see what I was still appreciative of, even though this big shift happened. And it took me a while to think, even if I'm not the it queen anymore, you know, even if it's no longer my year, I'm still doing things that I never dreamed possible. And I had to just remind myself to be appreciative of all of it, even the experience of crowning the next winner and watching someone else go forth and conquer, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. And that sounds really, really challenging. And I didn't realize that maybe real opportunities would kind of, I don't want to say dry up. I mean, obviously you've had huge success since, but that it it might even feel that way because I would think, oh, once you're crowned a winner, you're always a winner. Like if you win a gold medal in the Olympics, you are forever a gold medalist. But for you, did you feel a marked decrease in invitations or opportunities or press? I totally love the fact that you can never go back and change history and remove the fact that I won my season because it is like that. So I will forever be the winner of season five. But with television and show business, it's all about what's current. And, you know, as soon as there's a new cast of girls and everyone's attention is on that, even if you might be the right person for a job or if you might be the right girl to call in for an audition, you're also going to be in competition with other girls who might have been on TV more recently and might get the part just because the notoriety is in their favor right now. Sure. They just have a little more heat on them right now. Yeah. And that's why a lot of the girls benefit by going on All Stars, which is the newest phenomenon, which is where queens who have already competed then compete again. But it's so much more intense because we know what to expect from them and we expect the most from them because they've had time to evolve since they competed the first time. So I've seen a lot of queens do their season, have their moment, and then they kind of fade a little bit and then they do all-stars and then they come back in a big way. So being current and being most recently on TV, it really affects our career as show people. 
Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Though, I don't know if you're allowed to comment on this. I will (laughs) say as a fan that the all-star rules sometimes super frustrate me. For those who don't watch, the queens kind of judge each other and they choose who's going to be eliminated every week as opposed to it being Rue's decision. So it's definitely a little bit more complicated. I'll just leave it there because we could probably (laughs) talk about that all day. Jinx, we're going to take the quickest break and we'll be right back. Do you want to know what's written in the stars? Then you'll be as excited as I am to hear that Sanctuary just released their new astrology app. Download Sanctuary Astrology on Apple's iOS App Store and stay updated on what's happening in the sky every day. This app is beautifully designed, and along with Sanctuary's free daily horoscopes, you can become a member and get access to your real-time chart readings given by professional astrologers through a super amazing messaging experience. With Sanctuary in your pocket, you'll have a full spectrum of cosmic insights at your fingertips. Stay up to date on all of Sanctuary's offerings by following them on Instagram at Sanctuary World. That's Sanctuary W-R-L-D. And be sure to download the new Sanctuary Astrology app today. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Jinx Monsoon. So Jinx, we were just talking about the peaks and valleys or the ebb and flow of being in the public eye. And also I think of maintaining one's interest in their craft. And hearing you talk about drag and maintaining your engagement with it and having it go through different waxings and wanings, it makes me think of people who sometimes ask me how to stay engaged with their witchcraft because I'll speak for myself. There are times that I feel incredibly plugged into spirit and I'm lighting the candles on my altar and I'm observing all of the holy days and the moon cycles and all the stuff. But there are certainly times when I'm feeling less engaged and so on. And I still maintain my relationship with witchcraft through it all. How do you stay engaged with your craft, with drag? And is magic part of that for you? Well, I can explain this by telling you how things went over the years since my win on Drag Race and how I found a way to stay engaged and passionate about it, even though every year is different and my career has taken so many turns. Mm. When I went on RuPaul's Drag Race, you got to see Jarek Hoffer, the artist who created Jinx, I think a lot more than you got to see Jinx because so much of it is behind the scenes. We do the challenges, but then a lot of the show is getting to know the artist. So I came out of the show and I felt like my fan base and my audience was expecting more Jarek on stage than Jinx, whereas Jinx is narcissistic and irreverent and Jarek is a lot more reserved and a lot more introspective and a lot more vocal. And so it was really hard because I would go on stage as Jinx and I felt like my audience expected Jarek. And then I stopped having as much joy in my drag because I felt like I wasn't doing what I originally got into drag to do, which is 
to create a character and step into that character and let them take over for a while. I often say that like the reason why I am so verbose and frightening as Jinx and kind of evil at moments is because I'm able to let all my demons out on stage, (laughs) purge myself of all my negativity in a way that benefits people through entertainment. And then I don't carry it with me in my day to day. So when I felt like Jinx had morphed into this weird combination of Jinx and Jarek, I wasn't having as much fun doing drag. So I had to ask myself, you know, what was it that originally got me doing drag and what used to bring so much joy to my life? And that's when I realized it's that turn my negativity, I turn my frustration with the world and into comedy or into artistic expression. I give that to my audience and then I purge it from myself. So when I realized that, I shifted all of my work back to being the original Jinx that I was before Drag Race. And it took some time for my audience to go with me on that journey because they came to my shows wanting to see Water Off a Duck's Back. And what they got was a drunken cougar uh, (laughs) (laughs) screaming about the ills of the world and (laughs) just being a complete narcissistic bitch on stage. But then through my public identity, through social media, people could see that Jared Coffer, the artist, was still there. And now I've found that balance in my life where I'm doing drag for myself, but I'm still doing it in a way that's effective for my audience, and I'm still enjoying it. And I'm not letting my audience tell me who I have to be on stage It was all just a big moment of asking myself, why did I come to drag in the first place? And what's going to keep me doing drag? Being honest with myself about that led me to being honest with my audience and with everyone around me. Like, this is why I do drag. This is how I want to do it. So this is how I'm going to do it. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought up Water Off a Duck's Back. For those who didn't watch your season of RuPaul's Drag Race, this is almost like a mantra that you would repeat to yourself when someone was being dramatic or bullying (laughs) you or just throwing any toxicity at you. Where did you learn that phrase and how has it been effective for you over the years? When you get cast on Drag Race, you're not supposed to tell anyone. You're not allowed to talk about it. You sign these non-disclosures. The problem is within the drag community, it's really easy now to tell when a fellow drag queen has been cast, you know. Sure. (laughs) It's kind of easy when this queen just all of a sudden has to pull out of all of her bookings and disappear for a while. It's pretty common knowledge, like that's what she's going to do. So we all respect each other by not talking about it, even though we know what's up. So when I got cast, it was a frightening thing. And I got two weeks to prepare. Then a fellow drag sister of mine, who later went on Drag Race, Robbie Turner, was driving me to the airport. We weren't allowed to talk about what I was going to do. And she was respecting that and wasn't asking me any questions about it. But as I was getting out of the car, she goes, you know, There's going to be people who are not going to understand you and they're going to say things and they're going to try to get under your skin. They're not going to take the time to really get to know you and love you for who you are. And when they start coming for you, you just need to let it be water off a duck's back. And it was like basically the last words that a kind presence in my life said to me before I went on RuPaul's Drag Race. And then when you go on a reality show like that, 
you're isolated and completely alone. And even though I made friends through the process, I felt completely alone because I was cut off from my chosen family. I was cut off from my blood family. I wasn't able to call and talk to the people who normally bolster me and help me feel confident to do everything. So I had to become that person for myself, which at times made me look like a crazy person sitting there muttering to myself. But if I didn't have that mantra and if I didn't have that positive memory, I probably would have gotten weighed down by the negativity that was surrounding me. Exactly. And then not been able to do your job and win this competition. So it obviously was really, really effective for you. You also brought up, you know, this idea of bringing your demons or your darkness or your shadow side on stage and kind of channeling that through the character of Jinx Monsoon. And it makes me think of the way in which witches are said to engage with shadow and light. It's not all just light and healing. There's also the shadow and the darkness and the depth and all the different lessons that lurk in the shadows there. And I know you've been interested in witches for a while. You have this wonderful cover of the song Witchcraft on your (laughs) album, the inevitable album, which is... Let me just pause and say, all right, I'm going to be super shady now, Jinx. A lot of the albums that come out from drag queens, I really want to like, and I just don't. And that is just a fact. Whereas your two albums, The Inevitable Album and The Ginger Snapped, are excellent. You're just such a tremendous singer. They're so clever. The musicality is really, really good. So big brava on that. But getting back to witches, and I've, I've heard you talk a little bit about your love of certain witches and witch characters. Can you expand on that a little for our witch-centric audience? <laughs> I can't pinpoint a, uh, a specific moment in my life where I became obsessed with witches, it's just always been a constant, you know, (laughs) when I was a kid watching Disney movies, my favorite characters were always the witches and the sorceresses. And I just always was so fascinated by the idea of being able to manipulate magic. Even though they were always the evil characters, I just thought it was so cool, you know, (laughs) that they were able to claim their own destiny, you know, and make the world what they wanted it to be. Yes. That's what I find the most compelling thing about witchcraft in my actual life, you know, in reality. I practice witchcraft as a philosophy and as a mindset more than a religion or anything else. For me, it's just a way of thinking and moving through my day and moving through the world because it's all about looking at the world around you and figuring out how you're going to contribute to the world around you and what you're going to take, knowing that everything you give and everything you take, it's cyclical and it comes back to you and it's taken back from you. And it's about opening yourself up to letting the universe tell you what you need sometimes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. When did you start practicing witchcraft? I think the moment I started practicing where it was a decision was I had a friend over for Valentine's Day. We were both single and we decided we were just going (laughs) to, I'm being very honest here, but we got together 
ate a bunch of mushrooms and watched a bunch of Tim Burton movies. Oh my God, that sounds like a dream. That was just our way of doing Valentine's Day as two single people. And and it was a dream. It was really amazing. I mean, if you've never watched Edward Scissorhands on mushrooms, (laughs) you're missing out. Uh, on that night, my friend walked over to the corner of my room where I kept all my crystals and candles and pictures of my grandma and all this stuff that I would wake up and look at it and feel charged and ready for my day. And he said, I love your altar. And I go, that's not an altar. That's just my crystals and my candles and my pictures of my grandma <laughs> and my infants and my <laughs> chimes. And yeah. He goes, yeah, it's your altar. <laughs> <laughs> And in that moment, I realized that I had already been practicing and just had never thought of it like that. And from that moment on, I was like, okay, I've always wanted to be a witch. Turns out I am. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I was raised by three women. I was raised by my mom, my aunt, and my grandma. Mm -hmm. My mom got pregnant with me unexpectedly. My aunt the moment she heard my mom was pregnant, like laid claim on me. She said, this is my baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's like a fairy tale. Yeah. And it was a legend in my family because my aunt found out at a very early age that she would never be able to have kids. (sighs) And when she heard my mom was pregnant, she just immediately, she said, you're not ready to have this baby, but I'm ready to have this baby. And my aunt was only 12 at the time. (laughs) Wow. Oh my goodness. And then my grandma was just excited to have a baby around. My grandma was very much a kitchen witch where all of her magic came from taking care of other people. She cooked for us. She never used recipes. She just like used her intuition and she created a home that was like a very safe haven for her children and her grandchildren and extended family and my friends. You know, my grandma was just always taking people in and nurturing them and caring for them. So between the three of them, I was raised by a little coven Mm -hmm. and My mom would have never say that she practices witchcraft, but everything my mom does, every decision she makes is influenced by superstition or old wives' tales or legends passed down through the family. And I remember this one day, she was chastising me for something, probably saying something that didn't settle right with her Catholic upbringing. And then moments later, we're at a cemetery and she's taking scrapings off of a tombstone because she said it was going to help her win the lottery that week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I have to ask if it worked. It didn't. Um, No, my mom's never won the lottery. Okay. I I mean, I figured I would have heard, but, you know, I have to do my investigative reporting. (laughs) Well, that's a great story. When your friend identified this altar and when the word witch started resonating with you in this more personal way, was this before Drag Race or after? It was like right before Drag Race. It was just shortly before Drag Race. It was also when I was kind of rising to local prominence as a drag performer in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Because when you work as a drag queen, you'll accept any gig you can get. (laughs) You do a lot of things for no money. You're just working for tips. But you're always doing it in hopes that it'll lead to something where you can actually make money and actually support yourself with your art form. 
And so I started at 14 and I, I spent years accepting 20 bucks for four hours of working in a show, you know, yeah, <laughs> I wow. shows for free and just hope I would make some money in tips that I could use to buy lunch at school that week, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So right before drag race was the first time I was making like enough money where I could, you know, I had a part-time job and I did drag and I supported myself comfortably mainly by being a drag queen. So then I kind of realized, I think I've unknowingly been practicing my own witchcraft. Yes. I just made this decision like, well, if I've been unknowingly doing it and I've been having a really good time lately, (laughs) maybe if I start knowingly doing it, I can kind of harness this and enhance what's happening for me. (laughs) Absolutely. And so how did that kind of come to pass? I mean, were you doing spells? Were you more intentionally following phases of the moon? If you don't mind sharing. The biggest thing that I did and the easiest jumping point for me was crystals. Mm. I've been collecting crystals since I was a kid, just because I liked the way they looked. And because I was so obsessed with witches as a kid, I thought, you know, one day I'm going to find a crystal that actually has magic powers in it. And (laughs) it's going to give me magic powers. So I was constantly looking for special rocks and crystals anywhere I could find them, thinking that one day I'm going to find this magic talisman or something. So I had just been collecting them my whole life. And then when I started actively like thinking of myself as a witch and actively trying to employ witchcraft in my life, crystals became, it's a physical representation of a metaphysical concept. A crystal is an artifact that can remind you of the way you want to be thinking, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a friend who talks a lot about Dumbo's feather and how Dumbo didn't necessarily need the feather to fly, but the feather was this like talisman or fetish that would help this character believe that they could fly or tap into the fact that they could fly. It makes me think of also like the ruby slippers, right? That idea where Glenda says to Dorothy, you know, you had the power in you the whole time to go home. So it sounds to me like that's what crystals might do for you. Absolutely. I had this one special crystal that had been with me the longest that I still had at this point in my life. And what I would do is when I would meet drag legends of mine, I would bring my crystal with me. And I would always feel silly to ask, but I'd always find the courage to do it. But I'd ask drag legends to put some positive thoughts into the crystal for me. And then every time I held the crystal and looked at the crystal, I was able to summon up those moments of Varla Jean Merman said this positive prayer for me into this crystal. And my friend Vendela Creme had a moment where she gave me positive energy into the crystal. And it didn't make it on to my season of Drag Race, but I brought the crystal with me and RuPaul held the crystal and whispered into the crystal. And so now to this day, when I look at that crystal, I can remember that people I've loved and respected throughout my life have at one point held this crystal and said a positive I mean, I hope it was positive. I hope they use it to cast a curse on me, but things have gone pretty positively. And it's kind of like for anyone who doesn't believe in the energy that crystals can project, you don't have to believe that the crystals have power 
to understand that when I look at that crystal, I remember these positive moments in my life and it fills me with that positive energy. Ah, gorgeous, gorgeous. And I think that's a good place for us to take another break. We'll be right back, Jinx. Longtime listeners to the podcast know that I am obsessed with Mithras candles. They are the most beautiful beeswax candles I have ever seen, and they're handcrafted in Philadelphia. Mithras candles smell intoxicating, and they look even better with their wizardly dripped pillars. They also come in a variety of other shapes, from pyramids to tapers to tea lights, and they give off a warm and gentle glow. I have tons of Mithras candles, and I can't get enough. And now you can get some too by going to MithrasCandle.com and using offer code WITCH for 10% off your first order of 2019. So go to Mithras Candle, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use code WITCH for 10% off your first order of the year. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Jinx Monsoon. <laughs> Jinx, thank you so much for sharing that gorgeous story about the crystal. And I have like so many questions about it that we could probably fill up the rest of our show talking about it, but I'll, I'll just try to keep myself to one or two. Can you share with us the kind of crystal this is or the color? It's a quartz crystal. It's fairly clear. It has a lot of markings down at the base of it. And it's only about the size of, I mean, it fits perfectly in my palm. I can hide it with my fingers. So it's like, I don't know, maybe about golf ball size. Mm. And it has a flat base and then a point at the top. And I've had this crystal since I was a kid. And the moment I saw this crystal, I think at the Portland Saturday market at one of the gem shops that I used to go to all the time, I just saw this crystal and I was like, the way it stood up on its own, there was just something about it where it looks like, oh, this is a magic crystal. Oh, <laughs> yes. And, you know, supposedly quartz crystal is supposed to be a great energy conductor and help keep you really clear. So it makes a lot of sense that that might be one that you gravitated towards. And now I have to ask, okay, forgive me for not remembering exactly when you wore this outfit, but the costume that your Funko Pop doll is in, that kind of like Emerald City yeah. fantasy, if you will, was yeah. that coming from a place of emeralds and crystals or am I? making a connection that's not there. Oh, no, absolutely. It came from a lot of different inspirations. But I wore that dress and that crown when I crowned my successor, Bianca Del Rio. That's right. And even though I, I no longer live in Seattle and, and when you do drag race, when you make the most out of your career, you potentially can spend about 80 to 90 percent of your year on the road. You know, sure. we make our money now doing appearances. I also do a lot of residencies around the world where I take one of my shows that I've written to a theater for like a couple months or on tour. So I spend a lot of time away from home. And at that point in my life, Seattle, I gave Seattle a lot of credit because even though I started drag in Portland, there was something about the drag scene in Seattle and the friends that I made there where I feel like that's where I truly took that big step forward that prepared me for drag race and that carried me through my time on drag race. Mm. So I really wanted to pay homage to 
Seattle in my big moment of crowning the new winner. I wanted to go over the top with the look. I wanted to look like Glenda the Good Witch, but I also wanted to look like the ambassador of the Emerald City. Yes. <laughs> so I took the Glenda silhouette with the huge, impossibly huge skirt and the huge headdress, and then also took the motif of the Emerald City. For the crown, I had a local artist do a resin casting of emerald shards to create the crown. So from head to toe, I was trying to look like the good witch of the Emerald City. Yes, yes. It was so breathtaking, Jinx. I mean, and just the idea of it being so crystalline, knowing now that you love crystals, it has this whole other layer of meaning and power to it. Yeah, and it was really wonderful because the crown was done by an artist named Eric Andor in Seattle. The hair that I wore was by Dennis Milan Benzi in Seattle. And then the dress was by Jamie Von Stratton in Seattle. So it was the three Seattle designers that I had worked with multiple times. I wore a lot of Jamie Von Stratton's designs on my competition, on my season of Drag Race. So I got to take this energy of all these people supporting me from the city that supported me onto television one last time before I stepped down as the winner. <laughs> oh, that's so moving, Jenk. So meaningful. And it also kind of gets into another area that I wanted to talk to you about, which is the idea of drag as witchcraft. And I mean this in many different ways. I mean, look, we've had Louisiana Purchase on the show, who is very blatant in her witchiness on stage. And for you, I think it, and who knows if this will evolve, but it feels a little more subtle. Somebody who might look at Jinx might not be like, oh, there's a witch. (laughs) Uh, Unless, you know, you disagree with me. But I'm thinking about some queens like Aja or Sasha Velour or Sharon Needles who've played with the iconography of witches. Whereas for you, it is, yeah, it's just kind of baked into your cake. Is that something that you think you want to maintain a more subtle visual aesthetic when it comes to witches? I like that we can recreate our aesthetic as many times as we want as drag queens. And my aesthetic in general, like my base aesthetic is very vintage. I always say it it goes from 50s, 60s, 70s. And then occasionally you get a little like 90s influence too. It's any time except for now. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. But Jinx kind of lives in the aesthetic of like 60s and 70s vintage clothing and hairstyles. And then every once in a while, I have a dress made where it's huge bell sleeves and it's black lace. And it's very witchy because every once in a while, I just need to feel like I look like a powerful witch. (laughs) And, And I always keep it within my realm of aesthetic. But it's funny because uh, a drag sister of mine, Trixie Mattel, once famously called me a swamp witch on stage. <laughs> and now, even though I don't always dress very witchy, you know, people refer to me as the swamp witch. And I kind of love it. And recently I've been leaning into it. And while I've maintained my vintage aesthetic, I've been doing a lot more flowing gowns and gowns that I think 
kind of read as like, oh, that's a witch trying to fit into our world, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. I love it. It's funny as hell, too, like the idea of what that might look like. Ah, well, I'm excited to see some more iterations of her. And I love this idea, too, of this persona being a way in which you're you're channeling things to get back to that idea of you being this vessel who can put your i don't know your narcissistic demons or your naughty demons or your evil demons out there and make them entertaining do you feel like when you're performing that you are i don't know engaging with the world on another spiritual level somehow um there's so much spirituality taught in theater and performance art. So I do have a degree in theater. I studied it intensely. I went to Cornish College in Seattle, which does a conservatory style education, but in a four-year degree setup. So everything about my life for four years was studying theater. And there's so much spirituality in theater practices. Like Kabuki and the Suzuki method, a lot of it is about grounding yourself into the floorboards of the stage. And there's a ritual practice of like warming up by stomping in a very specific way, which is said to bring up the dust of your ancestors on the stage Mm -hmm. so that they are there with you while you're performing. Oh, that's gorgeous. And then also thinking about the fact that like drag is all about transforming into a different form. It's a little bit like shape-shifting. And I combine that with what I was taught in theater school, which is you can start from the inside, looking at the mind and the heart and the soul of a character, and it will affect the outside. Like it'll affect the way you move, your stance, and it'll affect the way you wear the costume. Or you can do it the reverse way. You can put on the costume, you can take a stance, You can manipulate your body and it will inherently affect the way you think and feel and will affect the inner aspects of the character. I think with drag, you put on the form, you shapeshift into this character, and then you almost don't have to make decisions like how would Jinx Monsoon do this or how would this character do this because you've put on the form, you've become the character, and now you have given way to this other person taking the reins for a while. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're channeling. It also reminds me of Vodou cultures, you know, this idea of being ridden by a deity, Um, Mm -hmm. or, or even in Wicca, the concept of drawing down the moon, this idea that you give yourself over to this higher consciousness that then kind of holds the reins for a while. Yeah, I often say... When I'm at my best, when I'm really delivering my A game on stage, it sometimes feels like being in a trance. It sometimes feels like even though I'm fully conscious and I'm I'm there, it sometimes feels like an out-of-body experience and I'm just watching Jinx take over for a little bit, you know? <laughs> like all my intellect is put into the writing of my shows And I I take all of everything I know and I write a show and I create the format and the structure and I choose all the songs. And then once I'm comfortable with the material, it's almost like putting a needle in the record and just letting the record play. What I love about live theater is there are nights where something goes wrong 
And I always say there's no mistakes in my shows, only opportunities for comedy or, or improvisation. Mm -hmm. And so I've had moments where like a fire alarm goes off in the middle of my show (laughs) (laughs) and we know it's just because someone accidentally pulled it. There's actually no fire, but now we have to deal with the fact that a fire alarm is going off in the middle of my show. And I know that Jarek Hoffer, the artist would just be like, why is this happening? This is not how I planned it. This is not how my Virgo brain meticulously (laughs) played out this scenario. But then Jinx, who I always think Jinx is a Leo. um, (laughs) That makes sense. She's able to handle the situation as if she planned it. And so many times when mistakes like that have happened and I've just given way to the moment and just let what happens naturally from me happen because I'm in this performative trance. People will tell me after the show, they're like, how do you get the fire alarm to go off every night at the same time? And I'm, I don't. That wasn't planned. I'm <laughs> yeah. so glad that it seemed that way. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Do you ever channel Jinx even when you're not in drag? Like, Do you find yourself tapping into her energy when you need it? And we hadn't spoken about this yet, but it's actually a big part of my life now is that I came out as non-binary about five years ago now, four or five years ago. But it's funny because coming out as non-binary publicly meant something to like my audience and my fan base, but to my friends and my family, it was like, oh, we know. <laughs> Did you think you were presenting as one gender or the other before? Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. It was a moment where I was like, oh, I'm not going to pretend that I'm something I'm not anymore. And the thing that drag has given me that is probably the most significant in my day-to-day life is that now that I am in control of my own career, I don't have to have a day job, which means I don't have to wear a uniform. And I don't mean a uniform like a subway uniform or a... (laughs) Sure. Just civilian, boring, fitting in uniform. Yeah. Yeah. You have to occasionally go through the airport, you know, like six times a week, but, (laughs) and I'm very conscious to how I dress because I don't want to stifle myself, but then I also don't need all that negative attention from people who aren't used to seeing someone outside of the gender binary. Mm -hmm. So I used to have to wear a uniform every day and move through my life feeling like I was stifling my energy. And now thanks to drag, I don't have to do that as much. I'm able to express myself day to day how I truly feel, which means that I've brought a lot of my feminine energy into my day to day life. And a lot of that strength that I feel when I'm portraying Jinx into my actual life. And it's funny because I talked earlier about how it was kind of a scary thing when Jinx and Jarek became mushed together. And now you know, all these years later, going through all that process and all those different growth periods. Now I'm really excited that Jinx and Jerrick are smushed together (laughs) because it means I'm able to bring myself on stage more, but I'm also able to bring my power from Jinx into my day-to-day life. I love that. And it's like in the Jungian sense, becoming more fully integrated and individuated, right? Mm -hmm. I, I talk about Steven Universe a lot. I don't know if you've watched that cartoon. I have. I'm not caught up, but I've watched early episodes and I love it. Yeah. It's a very powerful show. 
for me. If I practiced a religion, it would be Steven Universe. <laughs> <laughs> love, um, love. <laughs> a big aspect of the show is fusion and it's two characters fusing together to create not a combination of the two of them but a whole new entity like a completely self-contained independent entity and i think when we look at ourselves critically we can see how we are fusions of people who have had huge impacts on us in our life. And it's funny because I think the person I am right now is a fusion of the person I was born to be, the person I was born as, and the person I created for myself. And the two of them have now fused together where even though sometimes I'm dressed like Jinx and sometimes I'm dressed like Jarek, I'm both of them at all times now. Oh my goodness, Jinx. Well, I really can't imagine a better note to end on than that. I feel compelled to say congratulations because what an incredible accomplishment. And I think that's what we're all striving for in our lives. We're all striving to integrate and to blend all of our different influences and loves and fascinations so we can be our truest selves. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. So I'm thrilled for you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun when I... When I realized that was what I was striving for, and now I'm consciously making the effort to continue to fully realize myself. And the last thing I can say about it is you're going to realize yourself so many times in your life. The reason why gender should be looked at as fluid is because you may feel one way now and you may feel a different way five years from now. And both things are true. You were being true to yourself when you were feeling this way. You'll be being true to yourself if you feel a different way. You're allowed to have multiple truths throughout your life. And you're also allowed to have one constant truth throughout your life. It's just about being open-minded to experiencing your truth and embracing your truth. Because life's too short to be living a lie. (laughs) Absolutely. And I love this idea, too, of shape-shifting, which keeps coming up in our conversation and is certainly a very witchly word. Because to me, shifting shapes doesn't actually mean you're changing who you are inside. It means you're kind of allowing yourself to experiment with life, right? And to allow yourself to try a lot of different things and have fun and really embrace the joy that is transforming yourself over and over again. And that's what you show us, Jinx. So thank you so much for what you do. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving a platform for witches to speak to their public. (laughs) Oh, it's a great joy. And then I always ask people, is there anything you want to mention in terms of how people can find you? I mean, certainly I know there's Instagram, but if they wanted to get the pleasure of seeing you live or hearing your wonderful albums, what's the best place for them? Yeah, I, I always post a lot on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter for my upcoming shows. So if you want to know what's going on or what part of the world I'm in, you can follow me at all those places. I'm the Jinx on Instagram and then just Jinx Monsoon on everything else. And that's J-I-N-K-X. I have a website, which is jinxmonsoon.com. But upcoming, I have a tour through the UK with my music partner. We're doing a show called The Ginger Snapped based on the music on our newest album. Then I'll be doing a show called Drag Becomes Her with Ben Creme and Peaches Christ <gasps> in, in Manchester. Oh, are you ever going to bring that to New York? 
yes, we definitely want to bring it back to the States after we do this run in the UK because we had a great time doing it in the States, but we only did it on the West Coast. So we're hoping to do a bigger tour where we can take it everywhere because we love doing this show. And Death Becomes Her is my all-time favorite movie. So playing Meryl Streep on stage in a drag parody of Death Becomes Her is one of my hugest fantasies <laughs> fulfilled. I mean, life doesn't get much better than that, Jinx. <laughs> And this June, you can see me and my music partner doing our show, The Ginger Snapped, at Joe's Pub. We're doing an encore performance at Joe's Pub, which is an amazing venue and and helps us put on a really great show. So we have three dates that aren't coming to my brain right now, but all you have to do is (laughs) Google Jinx Monsoon, Joe's Pub, June and you'll find yes. it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to try to move mountains and oceans to get to be in the audience there myself. I can't wait to see it. Um, I'll also be at the Art House Theater all through July and August and the beginning of September in Provincetown, Massachusetts this summer for my, um, I think my sixth consecutive year there. I'm writing a new show and we still haven't found the title yet, but (laughs) yeah. And then every year I find myself in the UK a lot. I find myself doing tours through America and Canada. So just keep your eyes peeled and you can find me. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, one of my goals is to see you live soon. Hopefully that's going to manifest sooner than later. In the meantime, Jinx Monsoon, I wish you just the most crystalline, beautiful life. And thank you again for the great gift of your truth and your magic. I'm so honored to get to speak to you today. Oh, thank you so much. It was a delight. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Jinx Monsoon for sharing their glamour and drag magic with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and you might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Chiquita Pascal, Melanie Hawks, and Kenneth Lee. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots and lots and lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider pre-ordering my book, Waking the Witch, which is out on June 4th of this year and available for pre-order all over the place right now. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.